So I picked it up, first of all, with what's the matter with materialism? Okay. Um, this talk is a nice sort of um, complementary talk to what I did last week on arguments for God, um, because choosing a worldview is always a matter of uh, comparing and contrasting the different uh, available uh, possibilities out there. Uh, so you don't want to just look at uh, the positive arguments for different views, but also at negative arguments against those views as well. Uh, so I've punningly called this, uh, What's the Matter with Materialism? Um, a 21st uh, century review. And um, the way I'm going to do it is particularly by quoting from uh, a raft of recent publications by atheist and agnostic uh, authors uh, raising uh, problems with a materialistic or naturalistic world uh, view of one kind uh, and another, as we'll see. Um, I was rather surprised in reading um, the British agnostic philosopher Sir Anthony Kenny uh, was uh, reviewing uh, Alistair McGrath's recent biography of C.S. Lewis uh, in uh, the Times Literary Supplement. And during the course of that review, I was quite sort of stunned to see him drop in this comment. Uh, there are signs that naturalism is collapsing under its own weight. Uh, and when a, a famous British philosopher like Anthony Kenny, who's an agnostic, says something like that, he'll sort of ears prick up with interest. Um, now, I don't want to get too bogged down in matters of definition, although this is a, an area where it's notoriously difficult to define what we're talking about. But very briefly, naturalism or materialism, I'm going to kind of use those as, as synonyms for our purposes. Um, you could, I think, with fairness, say that, that a materialist or naturalistic worldview has been the dominant worldview in Western academia since about the middle, early, uh, middle of the 20th century. If I were to describe it using the kind of rhetoric that new atheist writers use when they're talking about religion, uh, slightly tongue-in-cheek, I might define it like this. I might say it's a philosophy made up by a bunch of pre-scientific ancient Greeks and accepted by about 2% of people. Um, to actually uh, define it from the mouths of some naturalists themselves, uh, Julian Bugini says uh, naturalism is a belief that there is only the natural world and not any supernatural one. Whereas Alex Rosenberg describes it as the view that physics is causally closed and causally complete. Causally closed, causally complete. That is, it's the belief that reality is an uncreated... <coughs> closed physical system and by calling it a physical system we mean that it's a system of impersonal and non-intentional things at base and naturalism often goes along often goes along with faith in an empiricist or uh, the idea that sort of scientific methods of knowing things are the only or perhaps at least the, the primary ways of knowing things about reality is naturalism showing some signs of, of crumbling? Gary Habermas says that just as idealism gave way to naturalism in, in the early 20th century, naturalism may now be losing its position of supremacy as a worldview. Um, 
case in instance, uh, the atheist philosopher Quentin Smith, a number of years ago, published a famous uh, article in an atheist journal complaining about the influx of talented theists into philosophy departments in the States. And he lamented, uh, academia has now lost its mainstream secularization. If naturalism is the true worldview, and a dark age means an age where the vast majority of philosophers and scientists do not know the true worldview, then we have to admit that we're living in a dark age. Now, uh, that's not to say that he's uh, thinking that the majority of philosophers and scientists are supernaturalists, uh, because you also have to take into account the large number of uh, agnostics uh, in, in terms of uh, people who um, perhaps work on particular philosophical issues, but without particularly speculating about big issues like, well, which worldview uh, is true. Nonetheless, on the one hand, you could look at the, re the revival of theistic arguments in current analytic philosophy as one of the signs of current dissatisfaction with naturalism, as Habermas says. On the other hand, uh, of course, there's the backlash of the, the, the neo-atheist publishing uh, sort of genre. But there's this uh, third publishing phenomena, which I want to draw our attention to uh, this evening. <coughs> Uh, the publishing phenomena of books in the 21st century published by atheists and agnostics, and in one case, a atheist turned theist, uh, writing about uh, issues primarily, as we'll see, issues brought up by contemporary scientific findings uh, that for them uh, put tension upon various aspects of a naturalistic worldview or indeed make it untenable. So you have books with uh, titles like uh, Anthony Flew's There Is no God with no crossed out and A stuck over it there. There is a God. How the world's most notorious atheist changed his mind. Or Thomas Nagel's recent book, Mind and Cosmos. How the materialist, neo-Darwinian conception of nature is almost certainly false. Or the atheist philosopher of science, Bradley Monton, in his book, Seeking God in Science, and so on. As uh, Wilkins and Morland say, there's a significant and growing number of scientists and philosophers of science and historians of science and so on who would say that there's more scientific evidence now that points towards uh, the existence of some kind of creator and designer of the cosmos than was available 50, 60 years ago. Um, for example, the implications of cosmology. So on the one hand... Um, Bradley Monton says, if the universe had a beginning, then that lends support to what's called the clan cosmological argument. But uh, at the conference uh, celebrating Stephen Hawking's 70th birthday uh, the other year, the atheist cosmologist Alexander Vilenkin gave a lecture there, you can find it on YouTube, uh, in which he uh, says that all the evidence we have says that the universe had a beginning from the point of view of modern cosmology. Now you combine those two claims and you get an obvious uh, outcome. Indeed, uh, in the editorial of New Scientist, which is hardly a, a bastion of uh, conservative religious views, if you read it, um, this is the editorial to New Scientist talking about that, that Hawking conference. They said this, The Big Bang is now part of the furniture of modern cosmology. Many physicists have been fighting a rearguard action against it for decades, largely because of its theological overtones. If you have an instant of creation, don't you need a creator? Cosmologists thought they had a workaround. They've tried on several different models of the universe to dodge the need for a beginning, 
whilst still requiring a, a big bang. But recent research has shot them full of holes. It now seems certain that the universe did have a beginning. Without an escape clause, physicists and philosophers must finally answer a problem that's been nagging at them for the best part of 50 years. How do you get a universe complete with the laws of physics out of nothing? And by nothing there, of course, you have to mean not anything, not the kind of things that Lawrence Krauss redefines nothing as meaning. So um, the atheist writer uh, Raymond Tallis uh, says that recent attempts to explain how the universe came out of nothing, which rely on questionable notions such as spontaneous fluctuations in a quantum vacuum, which is a, a something, um, the notion of gravity as negative energy or the ex inexplicable free gifts of the laws of nature waiting in the wings for the moment of creation reveal conceptual confusion beneath mathematical sophistication. Or the philosopher of science David Albert, uh, in reviewing Lawrence Krauss's uh, book on how you get something from nothing, he uh, chastises him in the following manner. He says... Uh, Relativistic quantum field theoretical vacuum states, try saying that after a couple of points, uh, no less than drafts or refrigerators or solar systems are particular arrangements of elementary physical stuff. The fact that some arrangements of fields happen to correspond to the existence of particles and some don't is not a whit more mysterious than the fact that some of the possible arrangements of my fingers happen to correspond to the existence of a fist and some of the possible arrangements of my fingers don't. And the fact that particles can pop in and out of existence over time as those fields rearrange themselves is not a whit more mysterious than the fact that fists can pop in and out of existence over time as my fingers rearrange themselves. And none of these poppings amount to anything even remotely in the neighbourhood of a creation from nothing. Anthony Flew, of course, a very famous um, British atheist philosopher uh, in the last 50 years, um, then in about 2004 had a, a bout turn of mind after a number of years of thinking about various issues. Uh, I've already mentioned his book co-authored with uh, Anthony Varghese, uh, uh, but um, this is a quote from a, um, uh, an interview that Flew gave around that time, in which he said that the more that was discovered about the richness and inherent intelligence of life, the less it seemed likely that a chemical soup could magically generate the genetic code. Two noted philosophers, one an agnostic, Anthony Kenny, the other an atheist, in this case Thomas Nagel, recently pointed out that Richard Dawkins has failed to address three major issues that ground the rational case for God, as far as flu is concerned. As it happens, these are the very same issues that have driven me to accept the existence of a God. The laws of nature, life with its teleological, purpose-driven organisation, and the existence of the universe, particularly given Big Bang cosmology. Thomas Nagel, mentioned by flu. Um, says in Mind and Cosmos that he reckons that the dominant scientific consensus faces problems of probability that I believe are not taken seriously enough, both with respect to the evolution of life forms through accidental mutation and natural selection, and with respect to, and this is Flew's issue, the formation of dead matter of physical systems capable of such evolution. 
The more we learn about the intricacy of the genetic code and its control of the chemical processes of life, the harder these problems seem. The coming into existence of the code seems particularly resistant to being revealed as probable given physical laws alone. So Bradley Monton, and you see these same three issues popping up for these, these authors, says that he concedes, as an atheist philosopher of science, that an argument that starts from the fine-tuning of the fundamental constants, the laws of nature, as Flew says, an argument based on the fact that the universe began to exist, and an argument based on the improbability of the naturalistic origin of life from non-life, are all somewhat plausible. It's as far as he'll go, but he go that far. Indeed, he says intelligent design arguments need to be taken more seriously than a lot of its opponents are willing to do. I hold that the intelligent design arguments do have some force. They make me less certain of my atheism than I would be had I not heard the arguments. I think there is some evidence for an intelligent designer, and in fact, I think there is some evidence that the intelligent designer is God. Another... Uh, issue aside from those kind of cosmological origins kind of scientific issues uh, that seem to be putting an increasing pressure on a naturalistic worldview in the 21st century is the issue of mind and the whole sort of issue in the philosophy of mind of whether your mind is just or more than your brain basically speaking Um, and just a, a few books for your possible reading lists here uh, so we have books like, um, collections of papers like um, Baker and Goetz's The Soul Hypothesis or um, After Physicalism or The Waning of Materialism from Oxford University Press. Nagel, uh, again, in Mind and Cosmos, brings this issue very much to the fore. Uh, as an atheist philosopher of mind, he's uh, particularly been trenchant uh, in arguing that uh, reductive explanations of mind just don't hack it. Uh, He says that conscious subjects and their mental lives are inescapable components of reality, not describable by the physical sciences. Coombs and Beeler, in introducing um, the waning of materialism, say that materialism is waning in a number of significant respects, one of which is the ever-growing number of major philosophers who reject materialism, or at least have strong sympathies with an anti-materialistic views. Over the last 50 or so years, materialism's been challenged by a daunting list of arguments. Um, To cut out their discussion, they conclude, this seems to be reflected in the attitudes of many contemporary philosophers of mind, a growing number, among them prominent philosophers who who once had strong materialist sympathies, um, like Jagon Kim, for example, uh, have come to the conclusion that at least some of the arguments against materialism cannot be overcome. Um, It's really... This quote tickles my fancy. This is uh, Daniel Dennett from the recent Moving Naturalism Forward conference uh, in which he said, I am just appalled uh, to see how there's this sort of retrograde gang, including some young ones, that are going back to old-fashioned armchair philosophy of mind with relish and eagerness, and it's just sickening. (laughs) Um, um, Some more interesting quotes on this issue. Raymond Tallis again. He says, the attempt to fit consciousness into the material world has failed dismally. Or Michael Roos recently commented, I find consciousness one hell of a challenge. I honestly think that we have not solved the mind-body problem. Matthew Iredale says, there appears to be something of a crisis of confidence 
in materialist accounts of consciousness. Frank Dilley, the roster of the dissatisfied in contemporary philosophy of mind is impressive. And indeed, a recent survey of philosophers indicated that, okay, while about 56% accepted or leaned towards, and I wish I had the percentages of which fell into which category, but 56% accepted or leaned towards physicalism, 27% accepted or leaned towards non-physicalist views of the mind. That seems to be uh, a growing direction of travel. One uh, last quote on this issue of uh, just the existence of, of consciousness and how you kind of square it with a materialistic worldview. This is from a, the conclusion of a fascinating paper uh, that was published in the Australasian Journal of Philosophy. It was the, the uh, Australasian uh, Philosophy Conference keynote address by William Lacan, uh, in 2007, and it was an article called Giving Dualism Its Due. Uh, dualism, the idea that there's not just your mind, but there really is a, an existent uh, mental uh, substance uh, to what you are. And Lacan uh, says this, I've been a materialist about the mind for 40 years. Being a philosopher, of course, I'd like to think that my stance is rational, held not just instinctively and scientistically and in the mainstream, but because the arguments do indeed favour materialism over dualism. But I do not think that, though I used to. My position may be rational, broadly speaking, but not because the arguments favour it. Though the arguments for dualism do indeed fail, so he thinks, so do the arguments for materialism. And the standard objections to dualism are not very convincing. If one really manages to be a dualist in the first place, one should not be much impressed by them. My purpose in this paper is to hold my own feet to the fire and admit that I do not proportion my belief to the evidence. Uh, you can find that whole paper online if you want to track it down. It's William G. Lycan, that's L-Y-C-A-N, giving dualism its due. Also putting pressure in this whole area of, of, of consciousness is the matter of thinking specifically about conscious rationality. So Nagel, again, says that the evolutionary naturalism provides an account of our, our rational capacities that undermines their reliability, and in doing so undermines itself. And the following quotes will unpack a little bit why Nagel, um, sounding very much like um, people like Alvin Plantinga, for example, would say that uh, a materialist evolutionary account of our rational capacities is self-defeating. So neo-atheist Sam Harris says that our logical, mathematical and physical intuitions have not been designed by natural selection to track the truth. Because, of course, according to natural selection, what they've been designed for, in inverted commas, is survival value. But there's not a necessary coincidence between survival value and being aimed at truth. as just by thinking about the fact that you know, lies can be very successful things for obtaining certain ends uh, would show you. So, for example, the philosopher of mind Patricia Churchland, uh, who I quoted last week, um, she says the principal chore of the nervous system is to get the body parts where they should be in order that the organism may survive. Truth definitely takes the hindmost. But if truth takes the hindmost on such an account, 
How can naturalists committed to that account be confident about the truth of their account? Um, Nagel concedes, the reliance we put on reason implies a belief that the basic methods of reasoning we employ are not merely human, but belong to a more general category of mind, a more transcendent, objective category of mind that just can't be squeezed within a materialistic view of things. So that's sort of putting uh, some interesting admissions and arguments from recent atheist and agnostic writers. I do think that at each of those uh, points of explanatory failure for naturalism as a worldview, if you like, there's a positive argument to be mounted in favour of a theistic view of things. Um, but then I covered some of that last week. So. <coughs> Thank you, Peter. Uh, Wide-ranging questions. We've got nearly ten minutes. Dan, um, you've given a lot of quotes from people who are almost all still atheists mm-hmm. and almost all still naturalists. Yep. And it seems like a lot of the points they make are points that if you are being scientific about it and being rational about it, you have to uh, concede doubt in certain areas and, and things like that. But that doesn't necessarily bring the whole thing crashing mm. down. And, um, and yet, at the end of the day, most of them are still naturalists. So there's got to be some, some weight there. Um, mm. And uh, it seems like the quotes are uh, give a, a very sort of one-sided view, or they're sort of uh, out of proportion with uh, the, the rest of the evidence, perhaps. Um, yes, I think you're absolutely right. Um, the, the, the point of the talk is to highlight um, atheist and ag- agnostic writers making admissions in the last decade about problems that they concede with a naturalistic view of things. Um, Now, as I said, obviously, when you're picking a worldview, it's a comparative exercise. So I I reckon what people like Bradley Monton would say, um, for example, is although he would say, I think there is some evidence that there's an intelligent designer and some evidence that that designer is God, he would then go on to say, but I think there is some evidence against there being a God. For example, the problem of evil, okay? which I think outweighs the positive evidence from design, say. And that's why I remain an atheist, um, absolutely. Um, but I think it is interesting to see... Um, those admissions of points of, of, of tension and difficulty explanatory-wise for, for naturalistic worldview and to highlight them like this and, and also to highlight that there's a, there's a sort of growing sense of these difficulties within that community so particularly within the, the issue of the, the philosophy of mind um, there does seem to be something of a, a sort of shifting of opinions although as I highlighted you know, a physicalist view of mind is still the majority view, um, but it's got less of a grasp of the discipline now, and there's more of a more of a sort of argument and more of a sort of Daniel Dennett getting uppity 
uh, about people changing their minds and doing things in a non-sort of scientific, reductive way and, and so on. Um, and as I say, then you'd want to take into account are there, are there positive arguments from these things for a theistic worldview and what are the arguments on, on the other side and so on. But um, yeah, I, I am self-admittedly um, taking a particular, you know, I haven't got time in 20 minutes to also put the case for the other side. And, yeah. <laughs> Arguments from what we don't know at the moment, rather mm. than positive arguments from what we do know. Yeah, well, uh, so in a sense, why do I take you back to defining naturalism at the beginning as uh, sort of saying it's, it's, it's actually this view that's accepted by very few people? I think the reason for that really is that it's a self admittedly counterintuitive view of reality. I think what the naturalistic view does is say something like, um, I know it seems to most people like there's more to reality than just the natural world, but that's not the case. That's a mistaken impression, and here's why. And there's a sort of burden of proof on naturalism because of that, to, to sort of shoulder that burden of proof in showing us why. And because um, they're, they're, they're kind of the basic argument for naturalism, as far as I can see, is the sort of Occam's razor argument that says... Um, believing in just one type of thing, the material world, is simpler than believing in a more sort of complex reality where there are minds and a god and all you know these supernatural realities. Um, therefore, if a purely material understanding of reality is capable of explaining everything which we can see is, is real about reality then we ought to go with that rather than having a more complex view. And um, in, in arguing that, you're sort of shouldering a burden of proof to, to, to show how you can, for example, say, well, I know it seems to you like consciousness is a very different thing than matter, but actually it's not, and here's why. So I think with that background at the back of your mind, when you then get, when you then get admissions of we have failed totally to explain consciousness in materialistic terms, you're then back to the, the prima facie appearance of reality, which is that, well, they're not the same thing. <laughs> it's just kind of obvious. Um, so there, there's an implicit uh, positive argument um, in the background anyway. And then, as I say, I think you could take each of these things and say, build positive cases from those failures. You, don't, you certainly don't, of course, want to simply say, um, you know, naturalistic views of things have failed to explain the origin of life thus far, therefore God did it. You know, that would be an argument from ignorance. Um, but as I showed last week in looking at the, um, the fine-tuning of the universe, for example, that's not how a positive argument from that would run. You'd have some sort of criteria of design detection that you say the, the evidence passes to make the inference and so on. So. Yeah. Okay, so let's take a break. Refills, cake, coffee, and uh, change of PowerPoint, change of style.